You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, people showed up. It's good to see you. Good to see everybody here. Yeah. Well, I think some of this aspects of this sermon have been brewing in me since we went to Israel last December and just different thoughts peppered here and there. So I'm, I'm mostly really excited. The part of me that isn't fearful is really excited to be here tonight. So let me just open up in prayer and we'll dive in. Lord, we just praise you for uh, blessing us with your presence here this morning or tonight. And Lord, we ask you to uh, open our hearts. Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Speak to us through your written word and through your servant, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my sermon is An Unlikely Hero. So I want to start off with a question. When I say the word hero, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What do you think of when I say hero? Somebody like this guy? One of these guys? Or maybe, maybe some of you are going to take it a step deeper than that, and maybe you have somebody like this in mind. Or, or maybe like this woman. It's Mother Teresa, by the way. In the first century, how do you think the Jewish people would answer this question? I'm sure many of them would have somebody like this in mind, which is, is an actual picture of Abraham, by the way. Or, or maybe some of them have, have this guy in mind. And some of them would think of this mighty warrior. This is Judas Maccabees, and he's leading the Israel to their independence from the Seleucid Empire between the Old and New Testament, somewhere around 134 B.C. But I don't think many people would have this person in mind. And this is... This is the main character and hero of our passage here tonight, this Roman centurion. So before we look at our text, I want to set the table with two basic thoughts. Oftentimes when we study the scriptures, we look at a handful of verses or maybe a passage, maybe even one complete story. But other times it's good to take a step back and ask yourself this question. Why is this story here? And does it have any relationship to the story that came before it or the one that came after it? Many times, the idea that the author is trying to get across, he tells in a through line. So that each story represents a different lens, all illustrating a, a larger point. And that's going to be the case tonight. We're going to look at three passages from the Gospel of Luke. And Luke has something really important to tell us. He wants to tell us something about Jesus and his kingdom and how it works. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, it's exciting because there's a really good chance that God really wants us to know something. But he doesn't always come right out and tell us. Oftentimes, the, the, the true treasure is hidden inside and he wants us to, to search it out. And, and that's what these passages offer us tonight. Second thing I, I want us to know is that 
These stories from Luke's gospel immediately follow his Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So in these three stories, Luke is going to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. So you could say it this way, that in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes the kingdom of God, and then the rest of the gospel stories, he shows us what it looks like. Jesus announces the Sermon on the Mount, he announces the kingdom of God, and then he, he shows us what it's like. And the very first character we meet is this strange, unlikely Roman centurion. So let's look at our first passage. This is all from the uh, seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people, he returned to Capernaum. At that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to heal his slave. Help this man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. For he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. Last December, many of us were in Israel and we were in Capernaum. We were at this synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I am not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come and meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I need only say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following, he said, I tell you, I have not seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Roman centurions were very important military officers in the Roman Empire. They were the backbone of the Roman military. They were in charge of discipline and keeping people in line. The word centurion means 100. So every Roman centurion had 100 soldiers in, in his charge, and they would do whatever they were told. If he said go, they went. So to see a Roman centurion was to see somebody in, in charge. He's the face of, of the might of Rome. And these centurions were all over the Roman Empire, so there's nothing unusual about a Roman centurion. They were everywhere. But there's several things very unusual about this particular Roman centurion. And I want to draw our attention to three. So the first, the first thing that's unusual about this guy is that he was a friend to the Jewish people. Right? He's, a, he's a military officer, and the Jews are a conquered people. Roman soldiers are not buddies with Jewish citizens. And this guy builds him a synagogue. And not only that, but the Jewish elders held this guy in such regard, they said, they earnestly begged Jesus to help him. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people. The second thing that strikes me about this centurion is that he cared. He had compassion. The thing that's on his heart is the well-being of one of his slaves. Now, in the, in the Roman Empire, slaves were considered possessions. They had no rights at all. 
and their only value was to do work. And so if a slave became sick or hurt or incapacitated, they had no more value and they were discarded like a tool that doesn't work anymore. Not only does this centurion not discard his slave, but he leverages whatever equity he has with his Jewish friends and he appeals to Jesus to heal this guy. So let me put it differently. If, imagine if you had one request that you could make of Jesus. You could ask him one thing. What would it be? See, the amazing thing is that the thing that's weighing heavy on this Roman centurion's heart is the welfare of one of his sick slaves. The third thing was he was humble. Despite being a, a man of authority as in the Roman military, he shows remarkable humility towards Jesus. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to receive you. I'm not even worthy to come to you. I understand how authority works. I know that if you just say the word, that'll be enough. My servant will be healed. Wow, right? Amazing. And that's Jesus' response as well. He is amazed at this centurion. He says, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. With that story in mind, let's look at the second story. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral possession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the carton, coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. <clears throat> so I highlighted two words in this passage compassion and great fear. And in great fear, Luke has given us the first e Easter egg, the first clue, because he's connecting the great fear and amazement that the crowd has here with the amazement that Jesus has in the first story. In the first story, Jesus was amazed, and in this story, the crowd is amazed. The question is, were they amazed at the same thing? Here, the crowd is amazed because they just saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead. I want to suggest that if we saw somebody raised from the dead, we'd be pretty amazed too and filled with a great deal of fear. <clears throat> the text says that, they, that a mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. They saw this as an act of God. They saw the power of God manifesting in Jesus and they were filled with awe and fear and amazement. Now, why was Jesus amazed? Well, the text says that Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. He hasn't seen faith like that in all Israel. But what specifically about this man's faith amazed Jesus? Certainly, at least part of it was that this guy understood authority. He recognized that Jesus, like himself, was a man of authority, and he understood how authority works. 
All you need to do is say the word. You don't need to come. I don't need to come. You just say the word. That, that's pretty amazing. But is that all there is? Is there anything else to it than that? The second word that I highlighted is a clue for us because it's a second Easter egg. There's something else amazing in this passage, and that is that word compassion. And the amazing thing that is that one who displays the power of God could be moved with compassion. In the first century, this would have been a very strange and unusual way for God to act. One of the popular philosophies in the day came from a group known as the Stoics. The Stoics believed in a concept called divine impassibility, which meant that God is unaffected by external emotions or passions. God was seen as an impersonal and immutable force that governed the universe according to rational and natural laws. Simply put, God was apathetic, incapable of feeling. And the reasoning was this, that if something could make God feel angry or sad or happy, then that means that God could be influenced by something outside of himself. And that thing that influenced God, at least in this moment, for that moment, would be greater than God, and nothing can be greater than God. Therefore, God must be apathetic. <clears throat> it's literally the word, the definition of the word stoic, right? Unswayed by emotion. This is one of the reasons that people did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He wasn't doing it right. He wasn't overthrowing governments. He wasn't raising armies for his kingdom takeover. Jesus revealed a God who's moved with compassion. And that word literally means with suffering or suffering with. Jesus was moved with a, a deep sense of empathy for this widow. He, he felt what she was feeling. He hurt the way she was hurting. He was fully present in her pain and he entered into her pain, but he did a lot more than just feel empathy for her. He was moved to relieve it. So you could say it this way, that Jesus had mercy, but he was moved with compassion. See, compassion is the action. Compassion is what love and mercy look like. So here's, here's a question for us to think about. What can move the most powerful being in the universe? Answer, nothing, right? The Stoics were right about that. Nothing can move God. Nothing except his own heart, his own choice. And Jesus is revealing to us a God who's moved with compassion. Why? Because that's who God is. That's his nature. See, God is, God is not Stoic. He is not apathetic. He's not incapable of feeling. God is compassionate. I want to suggest that we are a lot more easily impressed and amazed than God is. See, we're amazed at power. We're amazed at miracles. We're amazed at authority. And certainly Jesus had all these things. But sometimes the more amazing thing is right in front of us, and that is that how God chooses to use his power. 
See, what turns the most powerful being in the universe? Answer, his own heart. God chooses to be moved with compassion. A God who chooses to, be suffer, who, to suffer with us. So a couple hours ago, this isn't really part of my sermon, I'm just gonna throw this quick thing in here, is that I was studying for my, my, my Bible study and it occurred to me uh, as Jesus is feeding the 4,000 that we're often so aware of what we don't have, right? Our lack. We, we are, and that's what, that's what Jesus was connecting with the disciples. They were aware that they didn't have what it took to feed the people. And he just said, bring what you have. And how many times have we heard that? Pastor Wade has said for years that God is the source. We just have to be willing. Like, God, we must choose to be compassionate. He does the rest. Okay, let's look at the last story. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing, so John called for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to the life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So imagine being one of John's two disciples. Their, their mentor, their teacher, their rabbi is sitting in prison. And you're desperate to help him. And so you, you, you ask him, John, is there anything we can do for you? And he says, here's something you can do. Go find Jesus and ask him, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? And they're, they're like, We're on it. So they go and they find Jesus and they ask him this question and Jesus gives him this answer. Isn't it it funny that in the Gospels when Jesus is asked a very simple yes or no question, he often gives him a long story or parable. And can you imagine them scratching their heads? They're thinking, yeah, Jesus, that's really amazing the things that you're doing here. But does that mean that you are the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? It'd be really great if you could just answer the question. It's a bit curious that John the Baptist is asking this question, isn't it? Right? I mean, he's the one that says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus in the Jordan And he heard a mighty voice from heaven declare that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But John is sitting in a prison cell right now and he knows Herod's not gonna let him out. And earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says that Jesus has come to set the captives free. And I can just imagine John sitting in that prison cell thinking, now would be a really good time (laughs) to make good on that promise. Jesus, what are you waiting for? What's going on here? 
We believe you're the one. We believe you're the Holy One of God. So when are we going to see your power manifest? When are you going to raise up your army and set the captives free? I love what William Barclay says in his commentary over this passage. He says, if Jesus was God's anointed one, John would have expected him to say, my armies are amassing. Caesarea, the headquarters of the Roman government, is about to fall. The sinners are about to be obliterated, and judgment has become. He would have expected Jesus to say, the wrath of God is on the march. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, tell John what you see. He said, he said that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, the power of God's love and mercy is manifesting itself with compassion. See, the problem is very few people were looking for a compassionate Messiah. Very few people were looking for a king that would establish his kingdom that way. They were looking for one who would come in the power in the line of David and establish a military kingdom overnight. So, let's think about this for a minute. Why not power through might? Why not the way John the Baptist and many others expected? Why not ride in a mighty stallion like Maccabees and overthrow the Roman Empire? I mean, that'd sure get people's attention, wouldn't it? Would anybody miss Jesus as God's Messiah if he established his kingdom that way? And I think that's a fair question. I think that's why many people miss seeing Jesus in the first century and many people still miss seeing Jesus today. Because we have the wrong idea of what the power of God looks like. Right? We have the idea that, that power is might. And we hold the true power of God hostage in our little theological boxes and we demand that his power look like the world. See, we don't recognize power in meekness or humility, or kindness, or compassion, or service. We see power through force, through resources, through popularity, through assertiveness, through domination. And as my good friend Dave Bethany likes to say, here's the deal. As long as we have the wrong idea of what the power of God looks like, we're going to have a really hard time seeing the kingdom of God. And this is what Luke wants his readers to see. Luke is revealing to us in this trilogy that Jesus, he never, he never used his power to seem powerful. He never flexed his muscles. He, he never dominated anyone. He never suppressed anyone else's will or exalted his own. He certainly could have. At any moment, he could have called upon legions of angels and shown power like we've never seen before. He could have overthrown the Roman Empire in a heartbeat and established his military kingdom in an instant. So why didn't he? Why didn't he? And the answer is simple, because it's not his nature. It's not the nature of his kingdom. It's not the nature of God. It's not the heart of God. Time and time again, we see that Jesus in the Gospels, was moved with compassion. 
That's God's heart. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. So I'm going to wrap this up in a minute with something practical, but before we get there, I need to ask a rather absurd-sounding question. And that is, could compassion be the greatest superpower the world has ever seen? Could compassion be the greatest superpower the world has ever seen? Now, I'm not trying to just be cute and tie in my sermon title, maybe a little bit, but could compassion, how could compassion be considered the greatest superpower the world has ever seen? I'll tell you how. Because compassion is divine power. And here's the difference. World power takes. Divine power gives. See, military power can kill, it can dominate, it can rule, it can do a lot of things. But it can't save. And when the world's power of force and and dominion and taking has exhausted itself, what do we have left? We have more of the same, just somebody else in charge. And this is what the Jewish people expected their Messiah to do, is to take back control from the Romans and establish someone else in charge, them. Because that's what power does, right? Power takes. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works. God's power is divine power, and divine power gives. God so loved the world that he gave, and when Jesus saw that his, his, his good creation was broken, and with all the suffering and death and pain, God sent Jesus to enter into the world to suffer alongside humanity and redeem it. Jesus did not come to dominate. He came to heal and to save and to restore his good creation. So last year, Pastor Ryan preached a sermon that really changed the way that I read scripture and I see Jesus. And I'm going to try to echo his thought here. Because he said that it was on the cross where Jesus was inaugurated king. Remember that sermon? That this was the greatest moment in human history because this is where Jesus became king of his kingdom. And this was the only time in Jesus' entire life that he took anything. It's the only time he ever took anything was on the cross. It's where he took all hate and all pain and all suffering and all evil and all resentment and all wars and all suffering and all death and he absorbed it in his own body and he gave it a place to die. That's the compassion of Christ. Or you could say that's the passion of Christ. The greatest power the world has ever seen. The cross is where the perfect love of God gave hate a place to die. Amen? All right, I'm going to tie this back to our centurion. So as the gospel story crescendos with Christ on the cross, and it begins with Jesus announcing his kingdom, Luke shows us what the kingdom of God looks like with this Roman centurion, and he shows us how we can participate in it. Because this Roman centurion is a perfect picture of what a follower of King Jesus looks like. 
Let's think about it. He, he didn't stop being who he was, right? He was still a centurion. He still had his soldiers. He still, he still obeyed Caesar. He still served Caesar. None of that changed. The only thing that changed is that he allowed God to rearrange his heart. He began to see the world the way that God sees the world. See, God never changed who he was. He just changed his heart. He used his power for the least of these. He noticed the unnoticeable. He was a helper to the helpless, a voice to those who had no voice of their own. He was a mediator. And when Jesus saw this, he was amazed. He says, this guy gets it. He not only had power, but he understood the purpose of power. And I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel, Jesus says. See, we may never have the authority of a Roman centurion. We may never have 100 people in our command. We may never raise someone from the dead. That would be pretty amazing. But it's not probable. But we can all have compassion. And here's the secret treasure in this, in this passage, that the true power of God, the saving power of God, does not flow through might and dominion or even through spectacular miracles. God's healing, redemptive, restoring power flows through compassionate people. Amen? And this is how his kingdom comes, and this is how his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to invite Daniel to come back up and, and the worship team and those who are serving communion. We're going to have communion in a minute, but <clears throat> I want to close by, by taking the eight Beatitudes, Matthew's eight Beatitudes, and cast it alongside this Roman centurion. You know, these eight blessings of Jesus, they reveal the heart of God. These are the things that move God with the power of compassion. And what Jesus is saying is that you're blessed. You're right where you're supposed to be, as Pastor Wade would say. Right where you're so supposed to be when you see your own heart turning in this way. For the kingdom of God is for such as these. See, this is what divine power looks like. It looks like compassion when it begins to work through each of us, when it works through the church. So let's look at the first beatitude and thinking about this Roman centurion. Go ahead and show that. So what if like this centurion we recognize that no matter how powerful we are, we are all broken and in need of a savior? What if like this centurion we presented ourselves to be agents of comfort for those who are suffering? What if, like this centurion, we allowed God to align our power to his purpose? What if, like this unlikely hero, we determined not to seek our own right ideas or agenda first, but resolved to seek his kingdom and righteousness first? Five. What if, like this centurion, we determined that if we were going to err in anything, as Pastor Ryan has said, that we would extend too much mercy? not too little. What if, like this centurion, we ask the Lord to be our vision, to open the eyes of our heart so we can see the world that he, the way he does? And what if, like this unhero, 
unlikely hero, we determined to be agents of peace and healing and put away our swords? What if we resolved in our heart that even if it meant our own suffering, our own persecution, that we would follow King Jesus wherever he leads? Let's pray together. God of compassion, you have opened the way for us and brought us to yourself. Pour your love into our hearts that overflowing with joy, we may freshly share the blessings of your realm and faithfully proclaim the good news of Christ. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. 